Chapter Thirteen of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter Thirteen. Mrs. Brace begins. Court had recessed for lunch when Hastings, going down a second-story corridor of the Alexandria County Courthouse, entered Judge Wilton's anteroom. His hand was raised to knock on the door of the inner office when he heard the murmur of voices on the other side. He took off his hat and sat down, welcoming the breeze that swept through the room, a refreshing contrast to the forenoon's heat and smother downstairs. He reached for his knife and piece of pine, checked the motion and glanced swiftly toward the closed door. A high note of a woman's voice touched his memory, for a moment confusing him. But it was for a moment only. While the sound was still in his ears, he remembered where he had heard it before. From Mrs. Brace, when toward the close of his interview with her, she had shrilly denounced Byrne Webster. Mrs. Brace, her daughter's funeral barely three hours old, had started to make her threats good. While he was considering that, the door of the private office swung inward, Judge Wilton's hand on the knob. It opened on the middle of a sentence spoken by Mrs. Brace. "'Tell you, you're a fool if you think you can put me off with that!' Her gleaming eyes were so furtive and so quick that they traversed the whole of Wilton's countenance many times, a fiery probe of each separate feature." The inflections of her voice invested her words with ugliness, but she did not shriek. "'You bully everybody else, but not me. They don't call you Hard Tom Wilton for nothing, do they? I know you. I know you, I tell you. I was down there in the courtroom when you sentenced that man. You had cruelty in your mind, cruelty on your face. Oh, and you're cruel to me.' and taking an ungodly pleasure in it. Well, let me tell you, I won't be broken by it. I want fair dealing, and I'll have it. At that moment, facing full toward Hastings, she caught sight of him. But his presence seemed a matter of no importance to her. It did not break the stream of her fierce invective. She did not even pause. He saw at once that her anger of yesterday was as nothing to the storming rage which shook her now. Every line of her face revealed malignity. The eyebrows were drawn higher on her forehead, nearer to the wave of white hair that showed under her black hat. The nostrils dilated and contracted with indescribable rapidity. The lips, thickened and rolling back at intervals from her teeth, revealed more distinctly that animal, exaggerated wetness which had so repelled him. "'You were out there on that lawn,' she pursued, her glance flashing back to the judge. "'You were out there when she was killed. If you try to tell me you—' "'Stop it! Stop it!' Wilton commanded, and as he did so, turned his head to an angle that put Hastings within his field of vision." The judge, with one hand on the doorknob, had been pressing with the other against the woman's shoulders, trying to thrust her out of the room, 
a move which she resisted by a hanging back posture that threw her weight on his arm. He put more strength now into his effort and succeeded in forcing her clear of the threshold. His eyes were blazing under the shadow of his heavy, overhanging brows, but there was about him no suggestion of a loss of self-control. "'I'm glad to see you,' he told Hastings, speaking over Mrs. Brace's head and smiling a deprecatory recognition of hopelessness of contending with an infuriated woman. She addressed them both. "'Smile all you please now,' she threatened, "'but the accounts aren't balanced yet. "'Wait for what I choose to tell, what I intend to do.' Suddenly she got herself in hand. It was as unexpected and thorough a transformation as the one Hastings had seen twenty-four hours before during her declaration of Webster's guilt. She had the same appearance now as then, the same tautness of body, the same flat, constrained tone. She turned to Wilton. "'I ask you again, will you help me as I asked you? Are you going to deny me fair play?' He looked at her in amazement, scowling. "'What fair play?' he exclaimed, and without waiting for her reply, said to Hastings, "'She insists that I know young Webster killed her daughter.' that I can produce the evidence to prove it. Can you disabuse her mind?" She surprised them by going, slowly and with apparent composure, toward the corridor door. There she paused, looking at first one and then the other, with an evil smile so openly contemptuous that it affected them strongly. There was something in it that made it flagrantly insulting. Hastings turned away from her. Judge Wilton gave her look for look, but his already flushed face colored more darkly. "'Very well, Judge Wilton,' she gave him insolent good-bye, in which there was also unmistakable threat. "'You'll do the right thing sooner or later, and as I tell you. You're—get this straight—you're not through with me yet.' She laughed, one low note and impossible as it seemed, proclaimed with the harsh sound an absolute confidence in what she said. "'Nor you, Mr. Hastings,' she continued, taking her time with her words, and waiting until the detective faced her again, before she concluded, "'You'll sing a different tune when you find I've got this affair in my hands. Tight!' Still smiling her contempt, as if she enjoyed a feeling of superiority, she left the room. When her footsteps died down the corridor, the two men drew long breaths of relief. Wilton broke the ensuing silence. "'Is she sane?' "'Yes,' Hastings said, "'so far as sanity can be said to exist in a mind consecrated to evil.' The judge was surprised by the solemnity of the other's manner. "'Why do you say that?' he asked. "'Do you know that much about her?' "'Who wouldn't?' Hastings retorted. "'It's written all over her.' Wilton led the way into his private office and closed the door. "'I'm glad it happened at just this time,' he said, "'when everybody's out of the building.' He struck the desk with his fist. 
"'By God!' he ground out through gritted teeth. "'How I hate these wild, unbridled women!' "'Yes,' agreed Hastings, taking the chair Wilton rolled forward for him. "'She worries me. Wonder if she's going to Sloanehurst.' "'That would be the logical sequel to this visit,' Wilton said. "'But pardon my show of temper. You came to see me?' "'Yes, and like her, for information. But,' the detective said, smiling, "'not for roughhouse purposes.' The judge had not entirely regained his equanimity. His face still wore a heightened color. His whole bearing was that of a man mentally reviewing the results of an unpleasant incident. Instead of replying promptly to Hastings, he sat looking out the window, obviously troubled. "'Her game is blackmail,' he declared at last. "'On whom?' the detective queried. "'Arthur Sloan, of course.' She calculates that he'll play to have her cease annoying his daughter's fiancé. And she'll impress Arthur, if Jarvis ever lets her get to him. Somehow she strangely compels credence. Not for me, Hastings objected, and did not point out that Wilton's words might be taken as an admission of Webster's guilt. The judge himself might have seen that. I mean he qualified, she seems too smart a woman to put herself in a position where ridicule will be sure to overtake her. And yet, that's what she's doing, isn't she? The detective was whittling, dropping the chips into the wastebasket. He spoke with a deliberateness unusual even in him, framing each sentence in his mind before giving it utterance. I reckon, Judge, you and I have had some four or five talks, that is, not counting Saturday evening and yesterday at Sloanehurst. That's about the extent of our acquaintance. That right? Why, yes, Wilton said, surprised by the change of topic. I mention it, Hastings explained, to show how I felt toward you. You interested me. Excuse me if I speak plainly, you'll see why later on, but you struck me as worth studying, deep, and I thought you must have sized me up, catalogued me one way or the other. You're like me, waste no time with men who bore you. I felt certain, if you'd been asked, you'd have checked me off as reliable. Would you? Unquestionably. And, if I was reliable then, I'm reliable now. That's a fair assumption, ain't it? <laughs> Certainly, the judge laughed shortly, a little embarrassed. That brings me to my point. You'll believe me when I tell you my only interest in this murder is to find the murderer, and while I'm doing it, to save the Sloanes as much as possible from annoyance. You'll believe me also when I say I've got to have all the facts if I'm to work surely and fast. You recognize the force of that, don't you? Why, yes, Hastings, Wilton spoke impatiently this time. Fine. The old man shot him a genial glance over the steel-rimmed spectacles. That's the introduction. Here's the real thing. 
I've an idea you could tell me more about what happened on the lawn Saturday night. After his involuntary, immediate start of surprise, Wilton tilted his head, slowly blowing the cigar smoke from his pursed lips. He had a fine air of reflection, careful thought. "'I can elaborate what I've already told you,' he said finally. "'If that's what you mean, go into greater detail.' He watched closely the edge of the detective's face, unhidden by his bending over the wood he was cutting. "'I don't think elaborations could do much good,' Hastings objected. "'I referred to new stuff, some fact or facts you might have omitted, unconsciously.' Unconsciously, Wilton echoed the word, as a man does when his mind is overtaxed. Hastings took it up. Or consciously even, he said quickly, meeting the other's eyes. The judge moved sharply, bracing himself against the back of the chair. What do you mean by that? Skilled in the law yourself, thoroughly familiar with the rules of evidence, it's more than possible that you might have reviewed matters and decided that there were things which, if they were known, would do harm instead of good, obscure the truth, perhaps, or hinder the hunt for the guilty man instead of helping it on. That's clear enough, isn't it? You might have thought that? The look of sullen resentment in the judge's face was unmistakable. Oh, say what you mean he retorted warmly. What you're insinuating is that I've lied. It don't have to be called that. Well, then, that I, a judge, sworn to uphold the law and punish crime, have elected to thwart the law and to cheat its officials of the facts they should have? Is that what you mean? I'll be honest with you, Hastings admitted, unmoved by the other's grand manner. I've wondered about that, whether you thought a judge had a right to do a thing of that sort. Wilton's hand, clenched on the edge of the desk, shook perceptibly. Did you think that, judge? the detective persisted. The judge hesitated. It's a point I've never gone into, he said finally, with intentional sarcasm. Hastings snapped his knife-blade shut and thrust the piece of wood into his pocket. "'Let's get away from this beating about the bush,' he suggested, voice on a sterner note. "'I don't want to irritate you unnecessarily, Judge. I came here for information, stuff I'm more than anxious to get. And I go back to that now. Won't you tell me anything more about the discovery of the woman's body by the two of you?' You and Webster? No, I won't. I've covered the whole thing, several times. Is there anything that you haven't told, anything you've decided to suppress? Wilton got up from his chair and struck the desk with his fist. See here, Hastings, you're getting beside yourself. Representing Miss Sloane doesn't warrant your insulting her friends. Suppose we consider this interview at an end. Some other time, perhaps. Hastings also had risen. Just a minute, Judge, he interrupted, 
all at once assuming the authoritative air that had so amazed Wilton the night of the murder. "'You're suppressing something, and I know it.' "'That's a lie,' Wilton retorted, the flush deepening to crimson on his face. "'It ain't a lie,' Hastings contradicted, holding his self-control. "'And you watch yourself. Don't you call me a liar again, not as long as you live. You can't afford the insult.' "'Then don't provoke it. Don't—' "'What did Webster whisper to you across that corpse?' Hastings demanded, going nearer to Wilton. "'What's this?' Wilton's tone was one of consternation. The words might have been spoken by a man stumbling on an unsuspected horror in a dark room. They stared at each other for several dragging seconds. The detective waved a hand toward the judge's chair. "'Sit down.' he said, resuming his own seat. There followed another pause, longer than the first. The judge's breathing was labored, audible. He lowered his eyes and passed his hand across their thick lids. When he looked up again, Hastings commanded him with unwavering, expectant gaze. "'I've made a mistake,' Wilton began huskily, and stopped. "'Yes?' Hastings said, unbending. How? I see it now. It was a matter of no importance in itself. I've exaggerated it by my silence into disproportionate significance. His tone changed to curiosity. Who told you about the whispering? The detective was implacable, emphasizing his dominance. First, what was it? When Wilton still hesitated, he repeated, What did Webster say when he put his hand over your mouth to prevent your outcry? The judge threw up his head as if in sudden resolve to be frank. He spoke more readily with a clumsy semblance of amiability. He said, Don't do that. You'll frighten Lucille. I tried to nod my head, agreeing, but he misunderstood the movement, I think. He thought I meant to shout anyway. He tightened his grip. Keep quiet. Will you keep quiet? He repeated two or three times. When I made my meaning clear, he took his hand away. He explained later what had occurred to him the moment Arthur's light flashed on. He said it came to him before he clearly realized who I was. It, I swear, Hastings, I hate to tell you this, it suggests unjust suspicions. Of what value are the wild ideas of a nervous man, all to pieces anyway, when he stumbles on a dead woman in the middle of the night? They were valuable enough, Hastings flicked him, for you to cover them up for some reason. What were they? Wilton was puzzled by the detective's tone, its abstruse insinuation. But he answered the question. He said his first idea, the one that made him think of Lucille, was that Arthur might have had something to do with the murder. Why? Why did he think Sloane had killed Mildred Brace? because she had been the cause of Lucille's breaking her engagement with Byrne, 
and Arthur knew that. Arthur had been in a rage. All right, Hastings checked him suddenly, and getting to his feet, fell to pacing the room, his eyes always on Wilton. I'm acquainted with that part of it. He paid no attention to Wilton's evident surprise at that statement. He had a surprise of his own to deal with the unexpected similarity of the judge's story with Lucille Sloane's theorizing as to what Webster had whispered across the body in the moment of its discovery. The two statements were identical, a coincidence that defied credulity. He caught himself doubting Lucille. Had she been theorizing, after all? Or had she relayed to him words that Wilton had put into her mouth? Then, remembering her grief, her desperate appeals to him for aid, he dismissed the suspicion. "'I'd stake my life on her honesty,' he decided. Her intuition gave her the correct solution, if Wilton's not lying now. He put the obvious question. "'Judge, am I the first one to hear this from you?' and received the obvious answer. "'You are.' I didn't volunteer it to you, did I? All right. Now, did you believe Webster? Wait a minute. Did you believe his fear wasn't for himself when he gagged you that way? Yes, I did, replied Wilton in a tone that lacked sincerity. Do you believe it now? If I didn't, do you think I'd have tried for a moment to conceal what he said to me? Why did you conceal it? Because Arthur Sloane was my friend, and his daughter's happiness would have been ruined if I'd thrown further suspicion on him. Besides, what I did conceal could have been of no value to any detective or sheriff on earth. It meant nothing, so long as I knew the boy's sincerity and his innocence as well as Arthur's. But, Hastings persisted, why all this concern for Webster, after his engagement had been broken? How's that? Wilton countered. Oh, I see. The break wasn't permanent. Arthur and I had decided on that. We knew they'd get together again. Hastings halted in front of the judge's chair. Have you kept back anything else? he demanded. Nothing, Wilton said, with a return of his former sullenness. And, he forced himself to the avowal, I'm sorry I kept that back. It's nothing. Hastings' manner changed on the instant. He was once more cordial. All right, Judge, he said heartily, consulting his ponderous watch. This is all between us. I take it you wouldn't want it known by the sheriff, even now? Wilton shook his head in quick negation. All right, he needn't, if things go well, and the person I got it from won't spread it around. That's satisfactory? The judge's smile, in spite of his best effort, was devoid of friendliness. The dark flush that persisted in his countenance told how hardly he kept down his anger. Hastings put on his hat and ambled toward the door. By the way, he proclaimed an afterthought, I've got to ask you one more favor, Judge. If Mrs. Brace troubles you again, 
Will you let me know about it at the earliest possible moment? He went out, chuckling. But the judge was as mystified as he was resentful. He had detected in Hastings' manner, he thought, the same self-satisfaction, the same quiet elation, which he and Byrne had observed at the close of the music-room interview. Going to the window, he addressed the summer sky, "'Who the devil does the old fool suspect? Arthur or Byrne?' End of chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline